0: Miracy. And I
1: do think that in corporations and in environments, sometimes people are not always shining their brightest light. They're hiding their light.
0: I'm Sharon Richmond, and this is To Lead as Human. For more than 30 years, I've run a business called Leading Large. I help C-level executives expand their impact, clarify priorities, engage their organizations, and build cultures of accountability and respect. In this podcast, we help you envision how to supercharge your leadership by introducing you to leaders who lead with intention. I talk with top business leaders who exemplify the principles of leading large. They know that the influence they have as a leader comes with an equal measure of responsibility. These leaders not only deliver stellar value to their customers, clients, and stakeholders, They put priority on building organizations that provide purpose, meaning, and a healthy environment for their employees. We have the chance to learn from the challenges and successes they've experienced on their human journey. My guest today is Marissa Murray. Today, Marissa is an author, TEDx speaker, and founder CEO of Leaderly International. Previously though, Marissa spent more than two decades in business leadership roles, including as a partner with Accenture and as vice president of client delivery at Bell Business Markets. She now leverages her executive experience through her leadership consulting, coaching, and speaking services. Marissa earned her MBA from Queens University and is a professional engineer graduate from the University of Waterloo and is now a certified coach. Today, we're going to learn from Marissa as she shares not only her own leadership journey, but also some of the insights that inform her TEDx talk and books. As you listen Think about the comparison to your own experiences, for example, joining a new culture as an executive. And you also want to note the way Marissa describes the shifts in her leadership focus as she's grown into more senior positions. Welcome to the show, Marissa. I'm so glad you could join me today.
1: Thank you so much, Sharon. I'm happy to be here.
0: So let's just start with a get to know you a little bit. For our audience, can you just describe a little bit about your leadership journey, what roles, high level and expanding scope of responsibility?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Whenever I get asked this question, I feel like I have to dust off the early days, but I began as an engineer in very technical roles. But even as an engineer very early, I was doing deployments of technologies, which required me to lead teams. I did project management responsibilities. So I very quickly had responsibility for other people or for coordinating other tasks. So I spent you know, probably the first five to seven years of my career in product engineering and technology type activities. And then I did my MBA and I joined Accenture. And Accenture is kind of a place that uh, requires so much teaming. You're put together, you're formed together as a team. You have to get to know each other quickly. You have to deliver at the client quickly. And then you actually dissolve the teams kind of over and over. So it's a very supercharged environment in terms of being able to collaborate effectively and get a result. And so that was sort of this powerhouse of the requirement to lead others and to coordinate with others. And I spent 15 years at Accenture and so I made my way up the ranks and I I was a partner. I had about a thousand people working across my portfolio of accounts. And I always think about that time as really, I kind of had my own microcosm of culture within Accenture. I really had a uh, responsibility for motivating, creating a vision, helping this team drive and be successful. So that was a very enriching time. Sometimes in the consulting practices, you have a portfolio of clients and you have a team supporting those clients. And so you are kind of an entrepreneur within a large organization. And so that was a really enriching experience. And then I had an opportunity to become a vice president at Bell, as you mentioned, And there, again, cross-functional teams, large teams. I grew up sort of with advancing leadership responsibilities and learned, as many of us do. Of course, I had executive coaches. I had leadership development programs. But I also had a lot of School of the Hard Knocks.
0: (laughs) Well, I know I am always grateful to hear a little bit about the Hard Knocks, and especially any of them that kind of helped you clarify what were your own beliefs Or principles about leadership. So, how would you describe your leadership principles and how'd you get there?
1: Yeah, well, I think part of my passion for work is doing hard things. So, I've always kind of gotten excited about how do you fix hard problems? How do you get stuff done? I I don't know if that's the engineer in me, but making an impact is really important. And so, I would say that my fundamental belief system as I began leading teams was all about results orientation. And so, it was always about How do we get like, how do we align with this team around making sure we all know what success looks like and how do we drive as quickly and effectively as possible towards that success? So there was lots of the results orientation, although fantastic, was also probably over exhibited early in my leadership. And I guess like many people, as you are responsible for more and more scale, you have two choices. You either can worry about everything and take yourself down because you basically think it's all you, or (laughs) you can start really thinking about people. And if you are inspiring your people, and if you are picking good people, and if you are taking care of good people, and really for me, that was the only way for me to scale and continue to be successful with advancing responsibilities was to change my emphasis from simply trying to get results for my own selfish recognition at one point, right, to Mm. collectively figuring out what is everyone's mission and motivators and how do we maximize the collective intelligence of this team and how do we create an environment that allows people to do their best work. And so that was a big shift for me.
0: I imagine. And I know from my own experience working in the world of big consulting that it's largely influence driven because you really have you have direct supervisory responsibility for teams, but you really don't have per se directive authority over anybody. I mean, really in life, we don't have authority over anyone anyway. Everything we do is leading by influence. So how did you come to understand that?
1: Yeah, well, I agree with you that in any environment, using positional authority is not the best way to get work out, good work out of people. You can get work out of people, but not great work. Uh, I think in consulting, though, there is the reality that you actually don't have positional power over over people. place like Accenture, the talent has a lot of options of who to work for, uh, and people can escape you uh, by getting on another project or with another partner pulling them to a different engagement. And so what happens to a lot of leaders in that context is you don't always get great feedback about why people leave or what you're doing. I had to learn that everyone has free will, which is, you know, kind of a good thing to know. And if you want access to the best talent, you have to understand what is the incentive? What is the reason for that person, you know, wanting to work for you?
0: Yeah. I remember when I was more on the junior end of the consulting world that I often had experiences working with partners where I really had no idea why they wanted something done the way they did or what their thinking was behind it. And it. It definitely created a lot more difficulty um, at to the in the more junior roles, even the post MBA roles, which is when I was really starting out there. So I just wonder, like, what was your formula for creating teams that people wanted to stay on? let's Let's go that way.
1: Yeah, I think that to answer a little bit of your question, one of the biggest barriers I think that partners have is they get a lot of client interaction. So they work, they they meet with the C-suite, they're a trusted advisor to the C-suite. I mean, for my clients, I became kind of embedded in many of my uh, the C-suite leaders at my company. So you you end up knowing a lot of things that are in your head and that your team who just flew in for a three-month engagement, like there's no way they can know these things. And also say they flew in for a three-month engagement You are in a hurry from the get go. One of the things that I learned that I had to do was make sure that rather than that, my teams and my leaders had as much client exposure as possible. So, a lot of partners shelter them from too much interaction or from certain levels and get a little bit greedy or protective about their relationships. And that was one thing that I did a lot. I tried very hard to expose very junior people to very senior client leadership so that their spidey senses could develop as well. And I kind of learned that myself. I remember on one project, I had not seen the client and I was being asked to do all kinds of, you know, strategic plans for them. and, And they kept not inviting me to the client. And at one point I said to a partner in kind of a silly way. I was like, am I too ugly? Like, can I wear it? <laughs> like, is there something, you know, just to hint that like it would be really helpful if I got some client FaceTime. So that was something, I mean, just making sure that our team really felt like they understood how impactful the work is, that they got FaceTime with senior leadership. And that they also had variety, that they weren't doing the exact same thing that they'd done somewhere else. Because most people go into consulting because they want to do something different. Although they'll have an expertise in an area, they don't want to repeat that over and over and over
0: again. So one of the things you talked about was that sense that we have to jump right in and get right to work. And really, there's this rushed feeling. And I'm wondering, how did you find ways to connect deeply and quickly and still respect the speed requirement? I think that it is a
1: misnomer that we don't have time to sit down as a team and connect. The activities that I started to kind of build under my belt, very early activities are just so simple and they're so fast. You know, just, just a few round tables of what's your intention? What excites you about this project? Why did you say yes to this project? What would be a great outcome for you while you're in Montreal or wherever location we were in? So there's all kinds of just really short, silly exercises. And I think people waste a little bit too much time. You know, they'll say like, let's go, let's take the team bowling or let's take the team out for pizza. But really what connects people is dialogue. Yes, absolutely. Those things can help. But I think that having some really intentional dialogue with the team very early was like just not time consuming and paid off, you know, extraordinarily well throughout the engagement. And
0: I know just like you were saying that the partners don't get a lot of feedback. I think also sometimes the consultants don't get as much feedback. So how are you able to work that in given the pressures? And I know sometimes we don't like to give people feedback because we don't want to demotivate them while they're busy cranking on the next deliverable. So did you have any thoughts, any recollections about
1: that? Yeah, my favorite thing was just to do very quick debriefs after every single interaction. So we have a, a like very light and very in the moment. So we walk out of a meeting or a steering committee, for instance, and we say, okay, guys, what went well? And everybody shares. And then what could have been even better? And everybody shares. And we get just into that energy of you tell me what went well, you tell me what could have been better. And that everybody is constantly giving each other feedback. It's time. It's so important that it's timely. It's so important that it's first person and witnessed, you know, like it's not
0: hearsay. And the other thing is
1: that we can act on it right away.
0: Yeah, I remember as I became a leader of one of the practices at one of the firms that I was at, we used to do the same thing, especially after sales calls. Yeah. Because those, it's so often unpredictable how they'll go. And it was a really powerful short half an hour after a meeting before everybody hopped on their planes and flew back to wherever. Mm -hmm. So I certainly have to agree with you on that.
1: And in industry, I mean, in industry, the dynamic is different, but these practices work really, really well. And I guess the other thing that might have been different is I don't really like dissecting failures. Like I've actually found it not that helpful. People always want to do it. Like for instance, you know, a loss review and all those kinds of things. I much prefer doing win reviews and a lot of people don't do those. But there's a lot more learning in our win recipe than there was in a failed recipe, right? And so I would also be like, that was amazing. Like, let's write down like what we did. I I always kind of compare it to, um, you know, if you were trying to learn how to cook, you know, your Italian grandmother's sauce, like you wouldn't try it all the wrong ways first. You try it as close as you can, and then you try to refine it and refine it and refine it. And so that's the way I kind of look at feedback too is whenever there's like a win or something goes really well, such a great time to figure out what was done because that's that team's optimal recipe. And if you know your recipe, you can repeat it over and over again.
0: That's great. And I, I know also from my experience, I'm guessing it was the same as yours that people respond so much better to thinking about how to get better at what they're good at. Sometimes you have to look at a failure just to try to figure out did we miss something? How did we miss it? Or, you know, was there a sign that we just somehow overlooked? But I agree with you that largely the best learning comes from what worked here and how can we make sure we keep doing it like that or better? So I appreciate that. So you've got some leadership principles around learning from wins and about inquiring about people's motivation and bringing everybody together into these like quick team huddles where they essentially get to know each other and also get to share a little bit about what matters to them so they feel a little more mutual commitment. Anything else you can think about that you pulled from your Accenture experience? And then maybe let's jump to your more corporate life.
1: Well, I think that the other dynamic at a consulting company, and maybe it's more so... At some versus others, but there's a lot of competition between resources. People are constantly evaluated against each other, ranked against each other. And so there is a dynamic where it's competition sometimes. And that's something that I think you have to continuously, I, I had to continuously remind people that when we win as a team, everybody wins.
0: That's great. And I I imagine that carried over into the corporate environment as well at Bell, right? Mm -hmm.
1: No, for sure. I mean, the reality in corporate that I think was a big lesson for me is just all the history and the legacy. So Accenture was a place where there was was a lot of change. There's a lot of dynamism. There was a lot of working with many, many different client cultures all the time. And so a big shift for me when I moved into the corporate role at Bell was there was a hundred year history. Uh, There were really deep, deep deep-seated values that I didn't understand that I kind of stomped all over a little bit.
0: (laughs) Oh, tell us a stomping all over it story. Let's just get one good one. (laughs) Well, one of the things that
1: I I look back sort of shamefully is, you know, it was an incredible place for operational excellence. So there was a, a real... Commitment to technology excellence. There was a real commitment to process excellence. There was a real commitment to certifications in all kinds of very specific telecom protocol things. And I didn't see the beauty of that. What I constantly saw was a lot of internal focus and not enough client centricity. And because it was such a dramatic culture shift for me from a place that's pretty much wired to the client to a place that was. Committed to delivering good client experience, but from a whole different way, from building the capabilities operationally that then translate to a reliable product for a customer base. I couldn't at the time really see that the importance of that for people. And so I stomped all over it a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) And as a result, that really negatively impacted my ability to influence people. People didn't feel like I understood them. When I look back, we both wanted the same thing. We both wanted a high-quality client experience. There's just, I could have been more flexible in how I saw that exhibited. That sounds like a very tactful way to say that
0: you probably could have been more <laughs> curious and less sure. judgy. Absolutely. Which, absolutely. And by the way, people change jobs all the time these days, so it's not like we typically get into one company and stay a long time. I think what you're highlighting about learning what to value in a culture when you come into a leadership role, it is a bit tricky.
1: It is. And I do a lot right now in my current work, I do a lot of what I call integration coaching, which is very senior leaders coming into new companies. And that integration period where you're paying attention and you're really understanding what are people really attached to in terms of their values attached to in terms of processes cultures experiences etc it's different in every single place and you can't assume that you know what that is you need to sort of pick that up what 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 people are attached to and you might immediately it may not feel like something important to you but it will be excessively important to the relationships you build, if you kind of honor what people really honor, right? So I do encourage my clients to get really very curious about what are some of these things where people have a very close attachment to, and then just trying to understand why, because usually there's a positive intention beyond that attachment. I mean, we might think it's silly, but it's providing some kind of support or enjoyment for the employee base, right?
0: Yes, I think that's right. So you had this moment where you you became aware that maybe you weren't building the kind of influence you wanted with people inside Bell. How did you shift it? Oh, this is a bad story. (laughs) Yay!
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I ultimately left. I ultimately left way earlier than I had intended to leave. And I left because I was just really unhappy and my husband dared me. So... uh, This is not a very good leadership moment. But the truth is, I was very unhappy because I wasn't having the impact that I wanted to have. And because I, I just wasn't having fun. And I but out on some crazy champagne dinner celebrating a performance bonus with my husband. He said, you look sad. I said, Oh, it's okay. I'm going to get my team together and in 18 months I'll be happy. And he was like, "18 months of our lives you're going to be miserable." And I was like, "Well, that's how long it's going to take me to get everything that I want." And he's like, "If you're going to be unhappy for 18 months, you should quit." And then I was like, "I can quit," which was a bit of a a, a surprise to me because I didn't I'd never quit before anyway. It, it turns out that I decided to make a shift at that point. And it's only through my work over the last I've been uh, executive coaching now for 8 years. I have an incredible amount of empathy for my clients because I see my I see my experience in them all the time. And it's actually really helped me unpack a lot of these suboptimal leadership moments for
0: myself. So if we could, let's, let's just glean, like, if we could go back and wave a magic wand, what might you have tried? What would you maybe have done differently? Or maybe just something that, not differently, but just something else?
1: Yeah, for sure. I would have uh, allowed myself to fall in love with their culture. So I was spent way too much time fighting it in my head. And uh, and that was just futile because it's a culture, it's an ecosystem. And there is always good. There's always good in every culture. Uh, but if you can't see it, then you can't leverage the good. So for sure, I would have let myself fall in love with the culture. The second thing I would have done is just slow down. I was just in such a hurry to add value and to prove that they made the right choice with me and to have the kind of influence that I had I had spent 15 years building at Accenture. You know, you expected to have it overnight. And I think those two things would have made an enormous difference. And I share with my clients that are integrating into new executive roles that there are kind of three gremlins that I definitely had myself and that I see in clients that are making the change. And the first is, you know, am I adding value? And you want to add value because you've made this whole change and you want to make sure you can show what you can do. But that gremlin makes you overly anxious and eager and, and assertive in a way that's a little bit, that's kind of agitating, you know, instead of just knowing, just being confident that you will add value. But first you got to listen and learn, right? So the first gremlin, I, the am I adding value gremlin kind of plagued me. The second one is, am I being valued? So then there's this kind of like feeling of we want people to like us, but they don't even know us yet. We haven't done anything yet, but, but we are moving from an environment where we were well-known and well-appreciated to an environment where we're unknown. And so I do feel like that gremlin is kind of like, do they even value you maybe? Like, do they even think I'm smart? Like there's a little bit of a monster to manage there. And the third gremlin is, did I make the right choice? And that one is so flicky. It's just annoying. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. you think you have it nailed and then it just pops back up or you have a, you know it's good days, bad days, good afternoon, bad afternoon. It's so flicky. And again, that's very agitating. And so what I encourage people to do is just realize these three gremlins are unavoidable. They're gonna be in your head, but you wanna just make sure you understand which one's kind of talking and driving your behavior in that moment and try to settle them down because they're not helpful. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that is so, so true. I I mean, I think we've had a lot of parallel experiences, so I don't need to go back and repeat that. But <laughs> yeah, that's really smart. Mm-hmm. I just really appreciate what you were saying about falling in love with the culture. and And I know coming from mm-hmm. one environment and going to a different one, you think you know what you're getting into, but you kind of don't really ever know what you're getting into.
1: Well, one of the other aspects of the culture is all the interconnectivity of the relationships that you don't know. So people typically, a lot of times you're entering an organization, at least in my case, if you're entering an organization where people have had long tenure, so people are you know, in the 10, 15, 20 year period, the connections within the organization uh, are like a spider web, right? In terms of who's worked with who and who knows who and who influences who. So there's like, there's the org chart and then there's like the histogram the or whatever it effect. is of that's past, right. Yes, of past working relationships. And that makes it really easy for people to run around you if they're not in alignment with you. And so I found there's a lesson around, okay, I have this mandate. And this view of success that I've bought into and that the recruiting process told me to buy into and that my boss still says I'm supposed to do. But then there's everybody else's version of success that's in play that if I don't align to, they're going to outplay me. I don't even have a fighting chance because I don't know where the secret hallways are. I don't know the labyrinth I'm in. And so that means that alignment is just so much more important then, you know, then if you're in a regular organization where you inherently have some of those tunnels and slides and
0: hallways and trapdoors yourself. Yeah, I actually really appreciate for our listeners that we're talking about a different kind of company that's got this very long tradition, lots of longtime employees. That's quite different than some of the other guests where we've talked a lot about earlier stage companies or technology companies. So it really helps to take these leadership lessons and pull them from different environments. And that's just really valuable, I think, for folks to hear. Mm -hmm. So when I was getting ready to chat with you today, I went back and re-listened to your uh, TEDx talk about (laughs) interactive leadership, not interactive, everybody, interactive. (laughs) And so I was wondering if you could maybe share what were some of the challenges you faced that led you to seek that interactive approach and become clear on it. Maybe you could share some of that.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So interactive, just for clarity, is the combination between iterate and action. So it's interactive. What led me to build this framework and and the book basically outlines sort of a methodology was watching my clients or watching the shift over the last, like even decade of the accelerated pace of change and my clients oscillating between being very reactive and proactive. So I think most of us kind of grew up being like, we're reactive when they're in a crisis, and we know how to kind of react to a crisis. And during the pandemic, for instance, everyone became very reactive, right, to what was going on well, we really want to be proactive as good leaders. We want to have plans and we want to make things happen for us. We don't want to have things happen to us. We want to make things happen to us. And so with these two modalities of being either reactive or proactive, I was really feeling the need for a new kind of a new modality to go into. Um, as a leader. And that's this whole idea of iteration. And so what does it mean to be an interactive leader? It means that you are constantly attuning to the current environment, but in a calm and unstressful way. And I'm iterating every single day to the best of my ability. I'm iterating whatever planning window makes sense in that moment, but in kind of a calm, deliberate way. So I was looking for a modality where we could both have high aspirations around you know, an objective we wanted to have, but that we were pragmatic about what's this chunk that we're really working
0: on right now. Oh, I love that. One of the things that I find myself talking with clients about often, I won't say every, every week, but very often is this idea that as a leader, the way you show up, it's contagious. And so I offer for them this mantra, which you remind me of calm, capable, and curious. And that helps at least it helps me drop down into my own center, pause enough when there's new data coming in that I can try to make sense of it, but then move quickly enough with curiosity to figure out, is there more, or is there anything conflicting, or what might happen next, or how did we get there? So I do, uh, I really do resonate with what you're saying about that. So I always love to ask folks, the title of the podcast is To Lead as Human, And I wonder, what does that mean to you as a leader? What aspects of your own humanity have you learned to embrace? I love the title of your podcast
1: because when I was naming my company Leaderly, (laughs) (laughs) I was obviously thinking a lot about leadership. I mean, Leaderly to me is the biggest compliment you can give somebody, right? I mean, my perspective on to lead as human is very similar to I believe your journey to your best leader is your journey to your best life, your journey to your best human, your journey to your best parent, spouse. It's all about leadership, and our lives are all about leadership. And so, I do believe the human experience is about leadership. On in terms of leading self, and then leading others, and then leading change. So, I think all of those things are about um, to lead as human.
0: Yeah. And I do. I mean, part of why I chose it is that it is such a natural part of being human. And we do have that ability to uh, join together and lead and follow. So anything else as you think about, like, what did you have to learn about?
1: Yeah. I mean, the one piece of employee engagement survey feedback that is like burnt into my head was when I was being told I was intimidating. And I was like, that's impossible. I'm five foot two and I'm very silly. And it was so hard for me to even unpack what that meant for people, how that could be even true. And what I finally realized is that it was kind of tied to this results orientation. Um I would be, you know, you would give me a goal and I would be running towards it like a bull. And so it was really linked to that characteristic. But I remember. I was being debriefed on my employee engagement. And then I'd shared with my boss, like, how's this possible? I'm five foot two. This isn't even possible. He was like, it's not your height. (laughs) (laughs) Reflect on what else it is, your intensity or your accountability or your, you know, all those kinds of things. That's why I'm writing my third book. And my third book is about blind spots. And that's why I find blind spots so fascinating because they are often hidden behind your strengths. And so they're just the, you know, they're that kind of overexertion of your strengths. And so for me, that was a real blind spot of, of how could these beautiful characteristics, these beautiful leadership attributes yes. create an experience where I was intimidating to people that I really cared about and wanted to hear their opinions.
0: And it's a great example of overusing a strength becoming a blind spot. What are some of the other kinds of blind spots that you see as
1: typical? So in the book, I basically cover seven categories. And there's reflection questions that will be in there to help people. But to give you a flavor for what they sound like, some of them are very simple, right? One is just false assumptions. It's just things that you um, believe, but you're acting on missing information or inaccurate information. Another one is, we sort of hinted at it earlier, is having an unhealthy detachment from things that are sacred to other people that So we talked about that in the context of the culture, but looking for the things that other people are attached to that you're actually unattached to and realizing that it's unhealthy for you to be unattached to the things that are really important to other people. So there's, there's another category of reflection. Um, Another way to ask that is just like, what do, what does everyone care about that I think is dumb? (laughs) And then just sort of reflect on, you know, whether that's a healthy attitude towards things that a lot of people care about. Different views of success is another one, right? So what does success look like to me? What does success look like to everybody else? And that's a really nice reflection around uh, to help you uncover. The fourth one is outdated core beliefs. So this is something we've always believed that is no longer relevant. That could be something as simple as I've got to do it all myself, or I've got to be the expert. And now Mm -hmm. you're the leader and that's no longer, but you're still running that outdated belief unconscious habits that drive other people crazy. You know, it's a blind spot because you're dismissing the impact on other people. And the final two are uh, triggers from past pain. So this is when we've had a problem in the past. And now we think that problem is always coming. So we're always worried about it showing up and we kind of misdiagnose symptoms. And then we, you know, it triggers us to behave a certain way. And the final one is what I call mismatch mindsets. And that's really interesting. That's all about like, when I'm an individual contributor, what mindset do I need to have? When I'm a team member, a collaborator, what mindset do I have? And when I'm a leader, what mindset do I have? Because our mindsets kind of have to shift at each of these different levels as well. So sometimes we get stuck in a, in a mindset and we've moved on to another position. So those are the seven areas. And in the book, which will come out in the fall, Um, I will cover case studies from each of them to kind of illuminate them.
0: Oh, that will be a wonderful read. I look forward to it when it does come out. You remind me also, there was a colleague, dear, dear colleague of mine who used to say, you know, often a leader is fighting the last battle they lost. Yeah. Which for those of you listening, you know, if you're looking to draw some conclusion for yourself, think about What were the assumptions there? What were the mindsets there? What what did you wish would have happened? And is that still driving you in your current or new place, in your new role with your different people and kind of taking a double look at that? Two more things I wanted to ask you before we wrap up. The first is, if you were going to give your younger self when you were at the beginning of your leadership career, some tips on what you should understand that doesn't seem right to you at that stage what would you say to your younger self?
1: I think one of the things I noticed that I felt was not right is that I wanted everybody to be treated the same, and the same was not the same as everybody being treated fairly. The difference between treating everybody the same and treating everybody fairly, when I was younger, I would get really annoyed by by that difference. So A leader would be different to one of my peers, for instance, than they were to me, and I would feel that that was an injustice. I think what I would tell my younger self now is that you actually, your job as a leader is to maximize the contribution and talent of each individual, and that actually does require a lot of versatility in the way in which you are collaborating with your people. And it is a balancing act to make sure that that's not favoritism. And I guess I would tell my younger self, like, make sure you're getting what you need to be growing and developing as fast as you can. And don't worry about what other people may or may not need being different than you.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really wise thing to think about at any age. I think still there are executives I know, and I'm sure you do too, who are getting their heads around the idea that, Take something different to bring out the best in different people. And that is a key part of executive leadership is recognizing what is the secret ingredient for each person that will unlock their um, genius. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And so, in wrapping up, Marissa, what's one piece of advice you might have for our listeners, for the executives who want to become more effective leaders and build workplaces that do feel more fully human? I think what I would say,
1: is I do believe that thinking about how you are enabling people to really express themselves. I think freedom of self-expression, but also just sharing how people are uniquely talented, what their unique expertise is, finding ways to invite as many people as possible into the spotlight in their own way, I think is something that um, the most fun thing about humanity is our, our ability to enjoy the nuances of of this of life's expression in us, right? And so it's really, it's, it's a beautiful aspect. And I do think that in corporations and in environments, sometimes people are not always shining their brightest light. They're hiding their light. And if you can find a way to let people come into the spotlight and share what they believe, what their expertise is, where they really light up. So I would encourage leaders today to just think about, are people self-expressing in the workplace?
0: Well, thanks so much, Marissa, for coming on today. A big thank you to Marissa Murray for being here. I know that our listeners are going to want to find out more about you and your work and your TEDx talk and your book. So where can people go to find out about you?
1: Yeah, the best place to go is uh, my website, which is leaderly.com. So it's L-E-A-D-E-R-L-E-Y.com. So that's my my company. And of course, I'm on LinkedIn, and I'm on many of the other social platforms as well. So, And do you know what the title of your book will be? It is called Blind Spots. Um, Okay, Blind Spots. (laughs) Everybody look for it in the fall. How Great Leaders Uncover Problems and Unlock Performance. I think it's the subtitle,
0: something like that. That's just great. I love that we have so much in common. And I don't often bring on other executive coaches, but I'm so excited to have you come and share just about your own leadership journey. And how that's translated forward into your, your role now as a coach to other executives. So thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Please stay with me for a few moments as I share some tips for how you can advance your own leadership. Hi, this is Sharon. I'm popping in just before the takeaways to remind you that as an executive coach, I'm always looking to support new clients. If you or someone you know might be looking for an executive coach, head over to my website, leadinglarge.com, and you could book a complimentary appointment with me. In the first 25 minutes, we'll be able to identify a challenge you're facing and talk about whether I'm the right fit to work with you. I look forward to hearing from you. Marissa shared several tips today that are great reminders to all of us, all about patience and making time for the small acts that yield big results for leaders. Three examples. First, make time to go slow to go fast. Marissa built interpersonal connections to promote mutual commitment on her teams, which eventually helped them move faster. Taking only a few minutes of time, intentional, focused conversation, she had her team members share goals and interests, which help boost that team's motivation to have each other's backs throughout their project. Second, learn from wins, not just failures. Making time to diagnose what led to a success increases what we call conscious competence, becoming aware of the things you do that lead to success so you can keep doing them and not just focusing on things that went wrong. And third, when you're entering a new culture or a new organization, fight the urge to rush to prove your value. Instead, take time to understand what's considered precious in that culture and to fall in love with it. Showing you value what is before trying to change things is critical to leading any kind of change. Now here's your coaching tip for the week. Set a goal to slow down when your own sense of urgency starts taking over. Take five or 10 minutes to sit quietly, think about what's happening, and get past your first few thoughts. Then write down what you think should be done. It's important that you write it down. It will help you access your critical thinking, gain clarity, and become more intentional about what next steps to take, rather than just letting yourself act from your gut unchecked. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this has been To Lead is Human. You can find out more about me at leadinglarge.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G large.com. To Lead as Human is part of the Miracy FM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business and For Better or For Work. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Jeff Govertson, and Andrew Chapman assembled the episode. Danny Eaney is our executive producer, and post-production was provided by Post Office Sound. So you don't miss upcoming episodes, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And I have a special request. If you learned something useful today, please take a minute to leave us a starred review and another minute to tell your colleagues about us. The more leaders we can reach, the better for everyone. Thank you so much for listening today, and we'll see you next time on To Lead is Human. Miracy, i I'm Molly Mahoney. I'm Danny Eaney. I'm Virginia Mooskies. I'm Melinda Cohen. I'm Dave Lacani. I'm Michael Port, and you're listening to Making, making it. it. You would think that when you hit the New York Times list or the Wall Street Journal best list, you would feel like you made it. For me, it never
1: has. I think making it can mean whatever you want it to mean for you.
0: Making it is about having... Time to spend as I want to spend it.
1: Making it really is about being free to live according to your own genuine values and priorities.
0: It's about acceptance. Not only like making money, but make a difference. Make a contribution. Contribution, Like feeling like I'm making a difference to someone. And I don't think making it is a one and done. I think it's an ebb and flow spiral type of pattern.
1: Making it, to me, really means being able to bring your whole self to the table. Is really a choice that you make every day. Because the truth is that you do not really know what you're doing until you get started doing it. I'd say that the first seven, maybe eight years was like pushing a boulder up the hill.
0: If there's anything that I could say to my younger self, I would say, really, like for real, for real, trust I would tell myself no shortcuts. No shortcuts. The path is always in front
1: of you, even if it's not clear. The key is to keep moving forward.
0: Everything requires work and effort, no matter how much you love it.
1: You've got to find something that you love, something that you enjoy, so that your work is not a labor, it's not
0: a chore. Don't compare yourself to others. But recognize that if you see someone else doing something that is of interest to you, you can do it also.
1: I had this sensation of I kind of felt like the walls were shaking and I just felt like that's what I've been doing all this time. That's who I am.
0: In that moment, I knew who they were. I knew the burdens and distractions and I knew full potential. And then I ended up ultimately in the ultimate Frisbee Hall of Fame as a Johnny Appleseed for taking the sport out to the world. And so I just said to myself, you have to give this a try. If you don't give it a try, you'll spend the rest of your life wondering if you could have done it. The water is always changing, and your comfort with that doesn't come from knowing that there is no uncertainty coming. It comes from trusting in your competence to handle that. I like to say, don't emulate, elevate. That's how you're going to make it. Making It is a weekly podcast brought to you by our team at Miracy. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most anywhere else podcasts are found.